Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So there is a, a real deep dive into Kirsten Cinema. The title of Metamorphosis of Kirsten Cinema from Radical Activist to Senate Obstructionist over at MotherJones.com. It's written by Tim Murphy. His Twitter handle, Timothy, at Timothy Murphy, or at Mother Jones, and of course, MotherJones.com, the website. He's a senior reporter for Mother Jones, and he's on the line with us right now. Tim, welcome to the program. I'm not sure where to begin on this thing, but I suppose we should start at the beginning. Kirsten Cinema seems to have had kind of a rough life. My sense of what's going on is that she's trying to be John McCain. She's trying to be that mavericky person uh, on the Democratic side, but it isn't quite working out for her. But what's you, you know what's going on with Kirsten Cinema? Yeah, you know, you mentioned John McCain. I think that is a comparison that's made by both a lot of her defenders in Arizona and both a lot of her biggest critics. She started off in politics in Phoenix, in Maricopa County, as sort of the left to the left. You know, she was outside the Democratic Party. She's she ran, Green Party. She ran for office as a member of the Green Party, and in fact was the state Green Party spokeswoman, and then later ran again as an independent before finally joining and, and winning as a Democrat on her third try for local office. And she was really, you know, the sort of person you'd see at the front of every protest with a bullhorn and famously, you know, a pink tutu to get attention and managed over the course of, you know, 17, 18, 19 years to become exactly the sort of person she once was out in the streets protesting. She literally once led a caravan to protest Joe Lieberman, calling him pathetic, you know, a, a traitor to Democrats. Because and he was blocking Obamacare and, and the public option. And, well, this was actually back in the Iraq war days when she oh. was a really vocal anti-war activist. But flash forward to today, and, and now Joe Lieberman is ex-senator coming to her defense as she sort of fills the Joe Lieberman role in Washington as that last Democratic vote and sort of, you know, the moderate who's dabbling in obstruction. We caught this uh, audio, Lee Fong over at The Intercept released uh, last week, of Joe Manchin uh, meeting with the No Labels people, uh, you know, a, a so-called centrist group that's mostly funded by hedge fund billionaires begging with them to uh, help him get the January 6th commission so that he could have a stronger case to not blow up the filibuster. And apparently Kirsten Cinema has fallen into their web. Is that about, you know, she just wants the money? I mean, the, that, that's the main thing that No Labels has to offer politicians, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a classic Washington story there of, of people who sort of, as they move up the ladder and get exposed to more and more, you know, meetings with the business community and, and that kind of thing, start to moderate their message and, and embrace, you know, sort of corporate kind of talking points. But that can't, you know, really fully explain the metamorphosis. There's also lots of senators who you could put in that track who also support getting rid of the filibuster. So her story is, is very unique, nonetheless, in the way that, it's sort of a reaction to how her career started. The frustrations that she experienced as a very active progressive in Arizona in the 2000s, which is just a very bad time to be not a Republican in Arizona politics, really kind of forged like a new identity for her, seemed to have taught her, you know, convinced her that there was a different way forward, that, you know, you had to sort of practice this idea of radical acceptance of the opposition and, and just 
moderate your tone and, and just relentlessly try and work across the aisle to prevent the worst possible outcome and secure some kind of like, you know, incrementally decent, good outcomes. So she reinvented herself in Phoenix as a legislator and, and sort of has become that kind of person in Washington increasingly. So I retweeted a reporter with some video saying happening now is massive protest at Kirsten Cinema's office in Phoenix, I believe it is. And yesterday there was a protest at her office protesting her obstruction, you know, her throwing in with the Republicans on the filibuster and 10 people were arrested. Today these protests are happening. What's let me frame this question with an assertion and a question. I've been saying for some time now on this program that I think the closest politician to Kirsten Cinema in terms of motivation and career arc, as it were, is not John McCain, it's actually Roseanne Barr, who went from being a Green Party candidate to being to the left of the Green Party and then went to becoming a Trumpy. And basically it was because she just wanted to be the center of attention and whatever the thing du jour was that would make her the center of attention, that's where Roseanne Barr was. It certainly appears to me like that's who Kirsten Cinema is. Number one, would you rebut that or would you disagree with that? And number two, if that's the case, how do you reason with her? I, I would say yes and no. Um, she absolutely wants to be the decision maker. She wants that, you know, the choice to sort of be in her hands and, and be able to make the call. In fact, she's sort of explicit, you know, when she's pressured. Yeah, and, and these activists yesterday were hardly, you know, hardly the first time that she's been, you know, protested in her home state. You know, when she's pressured on changing her mind on the filibuster, on, on how she'll vote on, for instance, the $15 wage, she said, like, you're not going to change my mind. Don't waste your time, which is not something that senators say all the time. So she wants the football in her hands. But at the same time, she's extremely media shy. She wants to have the, the power, but she doesn't really want to be the center of attention. You know, she's not like a media hog. Um, Unlike Roseanne Barr. Uh, for sure. You know, she's not going to have her own TV show, which is ironic because when she got her start, I mean, she did have a radio show on Air America. She was she was like a very active, you know, participant on the progressive like, speaking circuit, you know, speaking at Netroots and, and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. but so she's, she's definitely retreated more into kind of quiet corners of, of Washington, D.C., and that's where she's more comfortable now. She rarely gives interviews to anyone outside of a national outlet, uh, outside of a state outlet, um, which is why it was so rare for her to kind of break her silence like she did this week when she explained, you know, her rationale for keeping the filibuster in the Washington Post. Right. Yeah. And that was, uh, that, that could have been written by, <laughs> frankly, by Mitch McConnell. I mean, you know, it's uh, probably the no labels people. So, so uh, back to my question, uh, we're talking with Tim Murphy, who is the, uh, the, the senior reporter at Mother Jones and, and has done this extraordinary deep dive into the, uh, the, the life and story of Kirsten Sinema, the uh, senator from Arizona, who is, uh, seems to be uh, one of the major obstacles to getting voting rights in the United States uh, via the, the filibuster. So, so back to my question, Tim, how best should the people who are listening or watching right now in Arizona, her constituents, or people, you know, in other parts of the country, the whole, you know, the other 49 states who are going to be impacted by the decisions that she's making, how best can they, uh, for lack of a better word, lobby her or influence her? Well, you know, it's not entirely clear how much, how much influence that will have on her, except that she is, of course, you know, interested in her own um, political well-being, and and so for somebody who's taken, you know, such caution throughout her like more advanced political career as a, as a member of Congress um, and as a senator to sort of toe that right line where she's like sort of where she thinks the median voter is. Um, so you know, I think there is some some optimism among even some of her critics that if if she can sort of be shown that like she's out of step with like that median voter in Arizona. Um, that she's pragmatic enough to adjust. You know, she's got like this voter in mind that, you know, this sort of white woman from Maricopa County that, that she's trying to sort of curtail, you know, tailor her message to. Um, right. And and she's long believed that, you know, she's very good at that and, and hitting those sweet spots. Um, but it's possible, you know, always that she decides that she's wrong. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the protest yesterday and the protests we've seen 
in the past on cinema is that she comes out of that tradition, but there's just been such a divergence between um, organizers and activists on the left in Arizona and cinema. Um, but it's not clear that her kind of theory of change is necessarily correct when you look at the history of the state. You know, the, the right. people who have really driven these electoral successes in in Arizona, you know, whether it's the defeat of Joe Arpaio or whether it's her election or Mark Kelly, have been the people who have been out in the streets this whole time. Um, you know, Latino immigration activists and and, and progressive activists, um, you know, the, the kinds of people that cinema started off with and has now diverged from. Right. Uh, they, they might still be be right in the end in their theory of, of campaign. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to Tim Murphy. Tim, we're going to hit a break here in just a second. But, um, uh, you know, Joe Manchin has, it, it seems to me, like right in front of our eyes, he's creating an escape hatch for himself, which is, I tried. I tried. I worked so hard with these Republicans. And finally, at the end of the day, they just wouldn't go along with me. And so to hell with it, I'm going to vote to blow up the filibuster or modify it or something, you know, get around it. I mean, I, I, I can kind of see that coming. Although I'm, I have no absolute confidence that's what's going to happen, but I can kind of see that coming. I'm not seeing Kirsten Cinema developing a similar narrative. Is there a way out for her? You know, there always is. Her career is defined by sort of unending reinvention and sort of constantly, you know, this idea of like self-improvement and learning from her mistakes. So there always is a possibility with her. She'll become Cinema 5.0. How do we encourage her in that? I guess it's just a matter of, you know, the protests, right? And things like that, continuing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure sort of what direction activists will go next, but they think that at least they have the party behind them. So as they say, watch this space. And read the article, The Metamorphosis of Kirsten Cinema, over at motherjones.com by Tim Murphy. Tim, thanks a lot for dropping by. Great talking with you. Thank you. Yep. Uh, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. What do we do with this, right? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And, uh, you know, what do they have left now on the GOP side? This is a, a fascinating idea. All they have left is hate. The Supreme Court, there's been a bunch of Supreme Court decisions out, and I'll just I'll go through them quickly in just a moment. But one from a few days back. There was a cheerleader who went off on a profanity-laced rant on TikTok or one of the, you know, one of the video platforms, who was suspended as a consequence of that. The Supreme Court ruled in her favor and said, hey, you know, she's not in school. The, the Supreme Court also said that if you're a farmer in California and you don't want union organizers on your property, it's private property, you can keep them off. This actually struck down a law that California had passed back in the Cesar Chavez era, back in the 70s, you know, to provide a right to unionize. They said that the police cannot enter your home without a warrant. So, you know, some fast, it's kind of a mixed bag. But the thing that really concerns me, and this is what I was writing about over at HartmanReport.com, is uh, Merrick Garland and the Justice Department. On Monday of this week, the Biden-Garland Justice Department defended Donald Trump against a lawsuit by the ACLU of the District of Columbia and Black Lives Matter for beating and gassing people, you know, in the little square, what used to be called Lafayette Square, I think it's now called Black Lives Matter Square, right across the street from the White House, beating them and gassing them to clear the area so that Donald Trump could come out and wave a Bible around for a photo op. This is in front of uh, St. John's Church, as I recall. And this case went before a federal judge, Dabney Frederick, uh, or Friedrich, you know, I don't know if she uses the German pronunciation or not, the U.S. District Court judge of uh, the District of Columbia. She's a multimillionaire corporate lawyer who was appointed by Donald Trump in 2017 uh, after the Federalist Society said, yep, yep, do that. And uh, who also struck down the CDC's moratorium on evictions. You'll recall that was last month. Um, she just ruled in favor of Donald Trump and Bill Barr throwing out most of these lawsuits. Scott Michaelman of the ACLU, these lawsuits relative to their, you know, attacking protesters across the street from the White House so that Trump could have his photo op. And Scott Michaelman of the ACLU said uh, in D.C., he said, quote, today's ruling this is, uh, you know, a couple days ago. Today's ruling essentially gives the federal government a green light to use violence, including lethal force, 
against demonstrators as long as federal officials claim to be protecting national security. Right. Yeah, he goes on to say, under today's decision, Lafayette Square is now a constitution-free zone. And not only is this decision a stunning rejection of our constitutional values and protesters' First Amendment rights, but it effectively places federal officials above the law. So that would be bad enough, right? A Trump-appointed, right-wing, hardcore, multimillionaire corporate lawyer judge says, uh, no, protesters don't have the right to protest. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump and Bill Barr had the right to, to gas them and, and beat them, injure them, physically injure them for protesting. That would be bad enough. But to make it worse... Donald Trump and Bill Barr had been defended in this case, again, this was Monday of this week, had been defended in this case by Merrick Garland, by Joe Biden's Department of Justice. Now, I thought we had a First Amendment right to peaceably assemble and petition our government for redress of grievance. I mean, that's the, the, the language in the First Amendment. But apparently not when Donald Trump is president, and apparently not when Merrick Garland is head of the DOJ, which has got me really scratching my head. I mean, this is, this is just one of several examples. Back on May 5th, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, federal judge, D.C. federal judge, ruled that when Robert Mueller was investigating Donald Trump colluding or attempting to collude with Russia and then trying to cover it up, and, you know, the old phrase, the cover-up's always worse than the crime. Trump tried to cover this thing up, and in the process of trying to cover it up, whether his collusion was successful or not is almost a peripheral issue. In trying to cover it up, Robert Mueller documents in the Mueller report 10 specific examples of felony obstruction of justice committed personally by Donald Trump himself. So the Department of Justice under Bill Barr, while Trump was still president, had a couple of lawyers write up a legal brief saying, this is just fine. Donald Trump did not commit a crime. We shouldn't prosecute him for these things. And we shouldn't even hand over the information to the next administration so that they could prosecute him. So this federal judge, Judge Jackson, says, no. I mean, this is, in fact, she, she asks a, uh, a rhetorical question. First, she says, this is in her official decision, right? She says, so why did the attorney general's advisor, she's talking about Bill Barr, at his request, create a memorandum that evaluated the prospective merit, the prosecutive merit of the facts amassed by the special counsel? Why? Well, and then she answers her own rhetorical questions. She says, lifting the curtain reveals the answer to that, too. Getting a jump on public relations. This was when Bill Barr was lying about what was in the Mueller report. And she ordered that this whole thing be made public. Guess who's withholding it from not only the public, but from Congress? Merrick Garland's Department of Justice. And then E. Jean Carroll. She accused Donald Trump of rape. He comes out and says, no, she's, she's not my type. She's not pretty enough to rape, essentially is what he said. And so she sues him for defamation. And Bill Barr steps in to defend him. And now Merrick Garland is defending Donald Trump. And in all three of these cases, the argument that Garland is making, now first of all, you know, it, it, you would be forgiven if you thought, okay, you know, the Justice Department has got, what, like 30,000 employees? It's got tens of thousands of employees. And there are still a bunch of Trump appointees in there and people that were hired during Trump's presidency who aren't appointees but have jobs there who are no doubt Trump humpers and, and just right-wing Republican crazies. I mean, prosecutorial staffs like police tend to draw such people, authoritarians. So you could be forgiven for thinking that, you know, this just slid by Merrick Garland and he didn't notice what was going on. All three of these cases where the Department of Justice is actively defending Donald Trump and Bill Barr. But you would be wrong. Because on June 9th of this month, just a couple weeks ago, Merrick Garland was dragged before Congress to answer for this, and Pat Leahy, the Democrat from uh, Vermont in the U.S. Senate, who himself was a U.S. attorney, he was a federal prosecutor for you know, half his life, says to the attorney general, who used to be his boss, not Merrick Garland specifically, but you know, he used to work, he, he used to answer to the attorney general. Pat Leahy is like, what the hell? 
And Merrick Garland says, well, you know, he was, Trump was just doing his job, and it's our job to defend the president. When the president says, speaks out loud about things that are of public interest, then, you know, that is, that is his job. I mean, this is just, just incredible. And Pat Leahy was, you know, just astonished. Essentially, Trump was doing his job and Bill Barr was doing his job when they gassed protesters and beat them. Trump was doing his job when he slandered or libeled E. Jean Carroll. Uh, you know, Bill Barr and, and Donald Trump were just doing their job when they hid Trump's collusion with Russia and his cover-up of it and his 10 instances of obstruction of justice that Robert Mueller documented. You know, when Richard Nixon was accused of criminal activity, his attorney general was a guy named John Mitchell. And John Mitchell tried to cover up Nixon's criminal activity. Mitchell, it turns out, had been Nixon's campaign manager and was actually involved in that criminal activity. But nonetheless, he tried to cover it up at the Department of Justice, and he went to prison for it. When Bill Clinton got busted in the Paula Jones case for lying under oath about having sex with Monica Lewinsky, the Department of Justice didn't ride in on their high horse and say, we're here to defend Bill Clinton. He had to hire a whole army of private lawyers and in fact, he didn't finish paying them off until 2005. It cost so much money. It took him five years to raise enough money to pay off his lawyers. I mean, nobody said that, you know, breaking into the DNC headquarters and lying about it like Nixon did or having sex with Monica and lying about it like Clinton did were normal parts of a president's job. And therefore, the Department of Justice had to defend them. I mean, you could argue that John Mitchell tried to say that, but he went to prison for that. I'm seriously thinking that Merrick Garland is out of his depth. I have a lot of respect for the guy as a lawyer. I have a lot of respect for him as the guy who prosecuted Tim McVeigh back in the day. But this is, this is beyond the pale. So, uh, you know, I'm publicly saying I think it, it's, it's time for the Biden administration to seriously consider a new attorney general. I realize Joe Biden said, I'm going to be hands off with the Department of Justice. And that's probably going to prevent what I'm suggesting from happening. But damn, this is wrong. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? 
I'm glad you brought this stuff up because back in January, right after Trump left office, mm-hmm. I was listening to NPR and there was some history professor of some college somewhere and he brought up this idea that it wouldn't look good. Mind you, I don't agree with this. It wouldn't look good if Trump were to be prosecuted by, especially by the federal government. Right, because we've never uh, prosecuted would, a president it would look before. Like, uh, we would look like a banana republic right. because they do that sort of thing. Did anybody point out to him that uh, Emmanuel Macron, the sitting president of France, was just convicted of either bribery or perjury. He was he was just convicted of a felony that Benjamin Netanyahu, who up until, you know, a few days ago or a week or so ago was the sitting prime minister of Israel, was uh, under indictment uh, for, uh, on multiple crimes, in, including, uh, you know, corruption and things like this. Anybody point that out? This is this is not well, a banana republic thing. This, you know, holding people accountable is what, you know, fully developed democracies do. Yeah, uh, that's but that's the problem. See, we've never... Uh, Nixon ended up being lit off the hook. Yeah. And he kind of brought that up, that we don't have a history in this country of going after criminal presidents of the past, and, and perhaps we shouldn't do it now. So to me, the only way we're really going to be able to nail down Trump, it's the state of New York. I don't see the federal, uh, I don't see the judiciary uh, going after him, perhaps even for the insurrection, unless there's some very overwhelming evidence that he was involved with the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. We're going to have to rely on the state of New York. Georgia, you know, election fraud there. We don't really hear much about that lately. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know know what's happened to that case. But that argument is such a specious argument. Richard Nixon was held accountable. There were articles of impeachment drawn against him. He resigned to avoid an impeachment trial in the House and Senate. I mean, the remedy for a criminal president is clearly laid out in the Constitution. It's impeachment. The Republicans wouldn't go along with that on two different cases, you know, uh, trying to bribe Zelensky and trying to overthrow the Republic on January 6th. The Republicans said, oh, that's all just fine with us. So, you know, the trials were not successful in the Senate and the impeachment uh, in the House was successful, but, you know, he, he was not convicted. So I think that you could build a case that Nixon didn't get away with his crimes and that Trump so far has. And here's the other thing, too, Tom. Uh, if the shoe was on the other foot, you know, damn well, the Republicans would get uh, if it was William Barr as the AG, they would go after. Look at what say, they did to Bill Clinton for lying about a BJ. <laughs> Honest exactly. to God, they spent $74 million. It was a two-year investigation. There were a half a dozen congressional committees. I mean, you know, look at what they did to President Clinton. Like I said, it took him until 2005 to pay off his own legal bills. And he didn't yeah. say to his attorney general, uh, hey, Janet Reno, why don't you come defend me in court? I mean, it's just this. Well, you know what they say about nice guys finishing last, Tom, and, you know, the Democrats, they just don't go for the juggler vein like they should. I, you know, I get it. Dennis, thank you for the call. Stick around, and then I got to tell you about what Ron DeSantis is up to. This is breathtaking. It continues. I'm going to get into where Josh Hawley is on all this and the Republicans in the United States Senate. But right now, let's just look at Florida. Travis Getty's writing over at Raw Story. Governor Ron DeSantis signed legislation requiring students, faculty, and staff at Florida's public universities and colleges to register their political views with the state. Now, where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy. And the Soviet Union. And, you know, Turkey right now under Erdogan, Hungary right now under Viktor Orban. I'm guessing it's getting close to that in the Philippines, you know, under Duterte. We need to know your politics if you are going to teach at our colleges or attend our colleges. Because it's our tax dollars, you know. Actually, it's not Ron DeSantis's tax dollars. It's the tax dollars of the voters of Florida. And you could argue that, you know, the voters of Florida put Ron DeSantis 
in as governor, so he is expressing their will, which is a really sad commentary on the state of American democracy. This, this gets back to what I was ranting about, where I, the essence of my argument was that when Bill Bennett, Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Education, stopped teaching civics in America's schools back in the mid-1980s, or at least stopped the federal government from subsidizing and uh, offering curriculum with regard to the teaching of civics in our schools. That, you know, we ended up with two generations, 40 years worth of people who went through public high school and, and middle school and elementary school, never really learning or understanding how our government works or, you know, what the basic principles of our democracy are, thus providing late night comedians with decades of funny little clips where they go out, you know, the man on the street interviews. You know, well, please name the three branches of government. Well, let's see, uh, McDonald's, Burger King, and Taco Bell? I mean, it's like... So, here we have Ron DeSantis. The purpose of the surveys, DeSantis says, are to determine the extent to which competing ideas and perspectives are presented on campus. Right. We want to know what's being taught. The uh, Speaker of the Florida House said, and I quote, as the governor said, we are at great risk as a nation and as a state on the lack of intellectual diversity that is in our, on our university campuses. And State Senator Ray Rodriguez says, funding can be cut as punishment to any college or university found to be, quote, indoctrinating their students. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. DeSantis also signed a law that students can now secretly record their professors and use that against them in civil cases. By the way, I, uh, earlier, earlier in the program, I mentioned that Emmanuel Macron of France, the sitting president, had just been convicted of bribery or perjury or whatever the crime was. I'm pretty sure it was bribery. I was wrong, and thank you both to Sean and to Nigel for uh, correcting me. It wasn't Macron, it was Sarkozy, which makes it even more to the point. Sarkozy is the former president, I believe. Yeah, he's the, for, or, yeah, he's the former president, and he just got convicted. People say, oh, well, you know, you've, you've, we don't want to start the president of uh, charging a sitting president or a former president with crimes. Well, what about when the former president is a criminal? I mean, when the sitting prime minister of Israel was committing crimes, they busted him. And now he's going to face, you know, uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu. He's going to have to face his accusers in court. Sarkozy actually got convicted. This isn't Banana Republic stuff. This is, this is, uh, uh, this is, is pretty straightforward stuff. Okay, Henry, it says here, you disagree with me and I'm spreading lies. What's that? So you claim that Donald Trump was, um, well, this is what you said. He was impeached as president, but actually he was no longer president. And it was a the waste second of time. time, and plus money, the money that they wasted, which was ridiculous. It is, Henry, it is never a waste of money when you are pointing out that the President of the United States is trying to overthrow the country that he is supposed to serve. Oh, that is not a waste of on. money. Come but, on. You know, Henry, if, if you're going to take that position, I don't think we have much to argue about. You know, that's just crazy talk. To say that if Joe Biden was, was trying to subvert the Constitution, you would want him held to account, wouldn't you? What's that? I said if Joe Biden was trying to subvert the Constitution and overthrow the, the government of the United States, the, oh. the elected government of the United States, you would want him held to account, wouldn't you? Well, how come he, they didn't when he was clearly, he even admitted it, when his vice president, that he went to Ukraine and he said to them, if you don't throw this guy out within six hours, the money that we promise you, you won't get. And lo and behold, oh, it happened. What so does tell that, me that, what about that? Well, number one, that's called diplomacy. That's what you do oh, with foreign on. governments. When they that's have corrupt the officials, there was the a corrupt... Harry, don't try to shout over me. When okay. you have a corrupt official in Ukraine... Okay and you are giving them money, you have every right to go say, get rid of the corrupt official or you're not gonna get the money. But what does that have to do with my question? My question to you is, if you've got a president, and you know, Biden's the president right now, if you, know, you wanna go after him, if he, if he was doing something that was seeking to overturn 
an actual election that he lost. You would want to go after him. Why don't you want to go after Trump? Why do you have two standards? Why is it that Republican criminals are fine with you, but Democratic criminals are not? Because if they were he criminals. broke the law, Biden broke the law, his son broke the law, and we're not doing nothing uh, about it. Nothing. Yeah. Come on. Henry, Come Henry, on. file a case in federal court. <laughs> Robert in Portland. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind today? Yeah, well, I got to say, he's got a point. I mean, there's a conflict of interest with his son in Burisma, but that's not what I was calling about. I, I do think that I think there's that's a lot been of well litigated problems. in the press. Well, here's the point. I mean, the Department of Justice is defending Trump's rape case, which if you, you know, you said Nixon was held accountable or was held accountable for his crimes. I don't think he was. Gerald Ford let him off. Yeah, he pardoned him. But the process of holding the president accountable, which ended up in Nixon leaving office, which is frankly, in my opinion, what Trump should have been forced to do. Well, much he, earlier he, than he never had a leave. He never had a leave because they had control of the Senate. You're talking Nixon or Trump? Trump. Yeah. Yeah. No, he didn't. And that's my point. Trump has never been held accountable for his crimes in his whole entire life. And I think it's, so, it's about time. And I think it's crazy that the Department of Justice is defending him or is planning to. Okay, defend well, here's the thing. Yeah, here's my point. Here's, here's my here's my point. Here's my point at large is that it's it's absurd. Like it, a lot of times I'll hear your show and it's like, wow, how why is this happening? I don't look at the world as left and right. I look at it as the elite. I look at the Democrats just like the Republicans. I think that they're one in the same. I yeah, think that's well, why I'm the sorry. Department they're not one in the same, Robert. And if you think that they're one in the same, then, you know, like with the previous caller, we don't have much more to talk about. I, you know, respectfully, see you later. Pat in Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind today? Hello, how are you? I am well, yes, thank um, you. I, I want to agree are. with you. I'm sorry. I want to agree with you about Garvin because I don't like the fact that he let Trump off that easy because this is what that rape case, because this is something that happened before he came into presidency. Yeah. So it should have been taken care of after he went out of presidency. Just like the Paula Jones government. case. Right. I mean, the Paula Jones case that, that, that was brought against Bill Clinton was, you know, this is something that happened before he was president. She alleged that he sexually assaulted her, you know, which, which led to all this stuff. And, and Clinton had to hire his own damn lawyers. Forgive my well, my obscenity. There, well, I agree with you on that. And Boston go to jail, too, for covering it up. Yeah, I'm with you. Thank you very much, Pat, for the call. Charles in Portland. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, morning, Tom. Hey, I disagree with you so rarely that I just had to call, but I, I don't think Garland is out of his depth. I think he's stuck with a bad situation. Both Nixon and Clinton didn't make the case that their crimes or misbehaviors or whatever you want to call them, they didn't make the case that it was part of the job. They had the class to say, well, I got caught, and yeah, that would be just facile and, and yeah. a lie on the. Trump just went ahead and abused it and said, nope. Lion's part of my job. And so they advance that case as an institutional fact about the presidency. And Garland has to defend that. He may not he doesn't have to be defend excited it. about it. He doesn't he have did, to no, defend he it. He, he, he could have said, you know, the Department of Justice was being politicized by the previous administration in a break Does with he tradition. Have that power? I mean, he, yes, he absolutely has that power. And here's the argument. In fact, there was a, a, a fascinating piece on NPR this morning, basically about the same thing, where what they were saying was that Garland is an institutionalist and he's trying to rebuild morale in the Department of Justice. And yeah, the, whole, the whole idea of being an institutionalist is that you don't rock the boat. If the institution is moving in a particular direction, you keep it moving in that direction. Well, uh, my position is that what Bill Barr did with the Department of Justice, if you think of it as a ship you know, crossing the Atlantic, he pointed it at an iceberg. And, and, and Garland comes on board and says, yeah, let's just keep on going because that's the, you know, we're an institutionalist. We're just going to keep doing the same thing that we were doing over the last four years. But what Barr had done was something that no attorney general had ever done with the single exception of John Mitchell, who tried to use the Department of Justice to cover up Nixon's crimes and went to prison for it. So what well, am I, and what I, am I, I, I agree Charles? with that as far as the, you know, the, the he's an institutionalist thing, but that I think is why he's kind of stuck with this. I mean, and you say he has the the power to 
to just not not pursue it. And he I, absolutely I will does. Word on that, and if so, then I'm I'm horribly disappointed. But I, I well, that's I, my point. I would, mean, Merrick Garland yeah. has the power, or his you know the people in the Department of Justice have the power to say we are not going to continue down this road that Bill Barr put us on, and we're well, going to pull back from do. that precipice. And the fact that Garland, in these three cases, just in the last few weeks. These three very consequential cases, you know, gassing and beating protesters who are exercising their First Amendment rights, defending that before a Trump appointee federal judge, you know, in, in a way that, uh, I mean, there was nobody in that case who was saying, uh, you know, other than the lawyer for the ACLU who was saying Trump ought to be held accountable. The E. Jean Carroll, I mean, all of these cases are just like on their face so wrong. And they all originated well, wait, with Bill Barr on, on and the, they should have uh, been dropped. On the Lafayette Square thing, which I agree, I mean, obviously, I think it was on the face of it, just a, a shallow, you know, political opportunity for Trump. But they had, there was an inquiry that said, you know, there's not enough proof for it. And so if there, I mean, proof, I've you can got know video. somebody's guilty of the crime, but not be able to prove it. And so if Garland That was not the argument. Before, that was not the argument that the Justice Department made. They didn't say we don't have enough proof on this. And had they said that, that would have justified an investigation looking for the proof or looking for, you know, absolution you know, for, for vindication for Donald Trump. Oh, yes, it was right when he did gassing those people. They didn't do that. Instead, you know, they just continued the argument that it was within his power to do that. It was within his right. Him and Bill Barr. Yeah, that's a dangerous, dangerous it argument. It really is. It really is. And the ACLU lawyer came out and said that. He said, you know, they've turned Lafayette Square into a constitution-free zone. And now the federal government can use the police powers of, of the federal government to beat and intimidate protesters and gas them because they disagree with their politics. I mean, this was Trump going after Black Lives Matter. It was just that simple. And, well, and you know, maybe there will be legislation that changes that they're talking about, you know, the, the Trump law that explicitly says a, uh, a president can be uh, indicted in office. So yeah, one would maybe hope. It will, well, it, see, that's, we'll get the laws we need. Yeah, that's a DOJ memo that the Nixon Department of Justice, the John Mitchell Department of Justice said, oh, we can't prosecute Richard Nixon because he's president. And then the Bill Clinton yep. Department of Justice, when Clinton was, you know, busted for, for Monica, they said, oh, we can't prosecute Bill Clinton. It's time to blow that that one up too. That's just an internal memo. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Anita in San Antonio. Hey, Anita, what's up? Hi, Tom. I was angry, too, when I first heard about that, about Merrick Garland defending Trump about the January 6th insurrection. Mm -hmm. And then I heard somebody talking about it on Stephanie Miller, and he said that, that was pure speculation. It was yes. by Reuters. Yes. That th there's no That's correct, that and I point that out in my yeah. article. It's not, though, pure speculation. If the two cases that have already happened... Right. The E. Jean Carroll case, that, right. yeah. if, the, yeah. if those two cases that have already happened, if they continue that logic, they will yeah. defend him based on this. Yes, it is speculation. You're right, though, Anita. But that but, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, no, I agree. I should have been I more agree. clear in my original rant, saying rather than saying that he is defending it, saying, he, you know, it, 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 Reuters is reporting that he intends to, to uh, or well, the Justice Department intends to follow this logic. This is the position they're taking. Yeah. I know, and it'll be infuriating if he does, but I just, I just don't think he will. 
I just don't. I think this goes a little too far. The the whole insurrection. It's going to be. How how would he justify that? If you know, and when he made those promises to, you know, to go after the people in the January sixth insurrection, and then he goes and defends Trump. I mean, this is not part of his duty. He was up there inciting an insurrection, overthrow of the government. Right. Or you could argue that it was a campaign speech, one or the other. Although he wasn't well, at that yeah, point campaigning campaign. for anything. Yeah. So. It was January sixth. Yeah. So I don't know how that would work either. I, I just I hope he doesn't do it. Maybe, you know, I'm yeah. Uh, yeah. living on a hopium here. But he's but, already done it twice. Um, yeah, I know. It, it's very disappointing. I'm, I'm not totally happy with him. I've got to be honest. But let's just um, keep our fingers crossed because I think this will be a little, you know, too far. He'll go a little too far. Yeah, I think, I think it's already gone yeah. too far. I, th- I think it's already gone yeah, way no, too I far. Agree. And. I mean, the other person, you know, I rant about this somewhat regularly. The other person who rants about this regularly is Rachel Maddow. Just, you know, what's going on at the Justice Department? You know, there were a lot of us who thought this has got to be just, you know, Trump appointees at the DOJ who are who are just, you know, they started down this road with Bill Barr and they're just yeah. going to keep going down this road. And Merrick Garland is busy, you know, with the FBI or something or, you know, he's overseeing an agency with, you know, tens of thousands of employees. He's a very, very busy guy. So maybe he can't, just can't no, pay attention to it. But then he comes before Congress on January 9th and defends this kind of thinking. I know. I want to get him, give him the benefit of the doubt, but... You know, it's it's hard because, you know, we know he, when Obama uh, named him for the Supreme Court when he nominated him, right. it was because he was, uh, you know, he was okay, supposedly, you know, he was acceptable. It was Orrin Hatch, actually. Uh, Obama went right, to uh, right. the Republican senator from Utah, Orrin Hatch, and said, who, yeah. who is considered a kind of a moderate Republican, and he said, right. give me a name of a judge. And Garland was a Clinton appointee. I mean, he, he was not... There was an indication that he might be kind of a Democrat, and he had, and he, and he was, and he was a tough guy, badass prosecutor back in the day. He went after Tim McVeigh, but Warren Hatch said, "Yeah, well, you know, Republicans will vote for him," and of course they didn't. I mean, they didn't even hold hearings. No, they no, refused no. to meet with him. So, well, yeah. I'm suspicious of, of anybody that conservatives or Republicans are you know, okay it. with. So, Anita, thanks yeah. for recalibrating me or correcting me on the Reuters <laughs> reporting part of that. I will, I will clean that up on the other side of this break. Thank you okay. very much. I appreciate right. it. Good talking with you. Uh, let me just qualify slightly my previous rant. I gave you three examples of where the Justice Department has been stepping up to the bat on behalf of Donald Trump and Bill Barr. The third example, which is the January 6th one, is, was reported by Reuters that in all probability, the Justice Department will be going down this path. Why? Because it is the exact same logic they have used in the two previous cases. So let me just make that very clear. They have not, the Justice Department has not yet announced that they are going to defend Trump for attacking protesters in Lafayette Square. But we'll see where this goes, right? <laughs> and, and when, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is the speculation that Reuters is pitching, is that they're going to again defend Donald Trump against a lawsuit from Congressman Eric Swalwell. And that's the one that we don't know about yet. I'm mixing things up here. So get it all straight and get it all clean and Make sure that you know exactly what's going on. Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's up? Our Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, it's just that besides undermining the code relief efforts, he's also undermined the Constitution. He is yet what you just told me, what you just said today on the radio about him asking for the political opinions of Mm -hmm. professors. I'm like, what? Stalin going to do some purges or something? Like, that's very disturbing. That's a First Amendment. That's what we call in the legal case law a chilling effect on speech on the First Amendment yes. on, under both Florida constitutional law and U.S. constitutional law. Because once you start identifying whose politics are, you know, which professor's politics are, you're going to discourage professors from a certain political viewpoint, like liberals from applying to that college. You're going to make all the colleges conservative because no one wants to be outed like that or have that in consideration of their hiring. And of course, what does that mean? That the governor is trying to influence the curriculum of the schools in interfering with independence. That's the whole point, the- Alejandro. That's the whole yeah. point. You know, how dare we? We've got liberal professors. It's, what's, what's amazing is the Republican Party has come back to one of the big talking points that Ronald Reagan ran on, which was pointy-headed liberals in our colleges. 
And I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but I remember it vividly. And you know, they, it's like everything old is new again. Alejandro, thank you. Spot on. Carl in Detroit. Hey, Carl, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? This is my first time caller. I'm calling on the mirror, Garland. Uh, I, I think he's a little, he's not a partisan. He's walking, trying to walk a tightrope and not seem partisan. And I think he should, we need a bulldog as an attorney general and prosecute the crime, no matter if they're a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah. Uh, just like Bill Clinton, like he said in the Paula Jones, they had a young lady who refused a subpoena. And the Justice Department, they prosecuted her, and she went three years in jail. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, who refused to testify. It is a very strange situation, and I agree with you. You know, Merrick Garland kind of comes across as Mr. Rogers, and we don't need Mr. Rogers right now at the head of the Department of Justice. We need, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, a a, a strong, historic, we need Bobby Kennedy. You know, back when Bobby Kennedy was running the Department of Justice and he was going after the white racists down in the South and the lunch counters and whatnot, he was bringing a big club and he was speaking out loud and he was standing up for justice and he was standing up for the rights of people and for the rule of law. We need an attorney general like Robert Kennedy, not Mr. Rogers, in my humble opinion. Now, you know, Joe Biden has the right to appoint anybody he wants. I totally defend that. And I get it that he's trying to not politicize the Department of Justice the way that Donald Trump did, and I respect that. And therefore, probably he's not going to do anything about this, but hopefully some public pressure will cause maybe Attorney General Garland to reconsider. He's got the capability, right? Garland knows how to go after people. I mean, you know, know, he, he, he went after McVeigh back in the day. He could certainly be doing this. Carl, I got to run, but thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. What is the real story here? This is going to be fascinating. Stick around. Jennifer in Portland. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for listening to us on X-Ray FM. What's up? Sure. I just wanted to um, touch on something that, that Nebraska has zero progressive radio stations. In the entire and state. I'm- in the entire state. And uh, I think that, that that's the most critical issue facing our time is the fact that people cannot get information anymore. And until we can change that, I can't see anything else changing. It's the most important issue. And to know that an entire state doesn't have one progressive radio That's not station. the only station where that's the case. That's the case in Alabama. It's the case in Mississippi. It's the case, Texas has one station that I know of. We're on the station. I'm sorry, I don't. The, the call letters are not right on the top of my head, but it's a Pacifica station. But there are no commercial progressive stations, to the best of my knowledge, in Texas. It's a barren landscape out there. I wrote an op-ed about this for The Nation back in December of last year, and laid out all the details with you know links and everything. This, in my opinion, should be the top priority of the Democratic Party. When Air America happened back in 2006, as I recall. A group of us, and I'm pretty sure Randy Rhodes was with me and there were a couple of other people. We went to Washington, D.C. to meet with a group of Democratic senators and members of the House also. Bernie was there. He was in the House at the time. And our pitch to them, at that time, we were on 46 stations across the country in major cities. So we had a real substantial presence across the country. And our pitch to them was that, you know, basically you all are in constant contact, regular contact with very, very wealthy people who donate to the Democratic Party. You know who these people are. You have a better connection to them than we do. Would you please reach out to them and encourage them to build a progressive radio infrastructure or even a television infrastructure like the conservatives have with Clear Channel and Cumulus and Fox News and Sinclair Broadcasting? And Bernie was gung-ho for this. He was just totally there and he He doubled down on what we said. But several of the other members of the Senate basically said, this is not our job. This is something that should be done by the so-called free market. And I think that those senators, one of whom were taking that position, one of whom later ran for president and lost, 
um, were shooting themselves in the foot, frankly. I, you know, this, this belief that, oh, you know, the, the marketplace will take care of everything. When you get billionaires walking in saying, you know, well, we'll buy 1,500 radio stations. It's just like. Yeah, there's no, that's not a free market at all. No, it's not. And, and it, it was, uh, shall we say, discouraging. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I, I hope that, you know, with this filibuster fight and everything else, I hope that the Democrats are starting to realize that what they're up against is not just Mitch McConnell and Republicans. It's Mitch McConnell and Republicans empowered by 1,500 right-wing radio stations across the United States, three right-wing television networks that, that cover the entire United States, and, uh, you know, and, and no really consequential opposition, at least in the commercial space. There is nonprofit opposition for Pacifica. There are some for-profit uh, progressive stations and, of course, Free Speech TV, but that's about it. And you've got X-Ray yeah. FM here in Portland. It's a nonprofit. Jennifer, I'm with you. Thank you. I got to run. Thank you. Well, Tom Harbin here with you and Mike in Lafayette, Indiana. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks. Yeah, I was talking about who we deal with, who we buy from, and mm -hmm. what we buy. Because I carry a small book with me whenever I shop. In fact, it's in the pocket, the side pocket of my Tom Hartman shopping bag. <laughs> okay. It's called The Better World Shopper. And I do believe it's by New Society Publishers. Mm -hmm. Anyway, every, every time they come out with a new issue edition, which the new one will come out in July, mm -hmm. I go buy 10 of them at my local bookstore, get a 30% discount, and then pass them out to people, a little paying it forward. Oh. Anyway, this thing, it rates companies not like Consumer Reports with what kind of product, you know, how good or bad is the product. No, they rate these companies on how well they treat people and the planet. Wow. And they've, they've got the list of the top 20 good companies, top 20 bad companies. Nestle's always near the top of the bad guys. Yeah. Anyway, they rate everything from gasoline to beer to chocolate to stores to banks, all kinds of stuff. So. I, the Better World Shopper. I highly recommend it. I'm completely unfamiliar with that. Better World Shopper. I will check that out. Mike, thank yes, you. And I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it's by New Society Publishing. Yeah. Yeah. It's out of Canada. I, I, I'll, I'll track it down. Thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate the call. Thank you, Mike. Maverick in uh, Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, what's up? Good afternoon, Tom. So, Mesley, as you may remember, back in the early 1970s, was subject of a boycott. Does that sound familiar to you I, at all? I remember it well. We had a child early in the 70s. Our oldest was born in 73. And we were, you know, just adamant about, you know, this baby's going to be breastfed and there'd be no Nestle product anywhere nearby. So, yeah, I remember it well in that. Yeah, I guess my point is Nestle has a long history of not being a good company to people of this planet and this planet. Yeah. They, it was pure evil what they did. They convinced people in some third world countries that it was more, I'm going under a tunnel, I might lose you here in Seattle. Mm. Uh, they convinced people in third world countries that it was a more modern thing to do to use infant formula than to nurse a baby right. in a natural way. And those way. people didn't have good water and so they were giving children diarrhea and, and killing them. Basically, yeah, the, the, was, the parents were without realizing. Problem. Yeah, that was half of the problem. But the more insidious aspect was, they once these women started using this this formula, next they raised the prices, and they gave it to them for free at first. Right. It was just like your corner, like your you know your heroin dealer from a seventies. Yeah, or the, show, or like the way the cigarette companies passed out uh, two cartons of cigarettes every month to everybody in the military during World War II. It's how my dad got addicted. <laughs> yeah. So then their breast milk dried up, and they couldn't feed their kids anymore. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it was it was evil. So. Yep, yep. I'm with you. I, I remember. I remember it well, Maverick. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the reminder. That was a good one, Elizabeth in Girard, Ohio. Hey, Elizabeth, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi, Tom. I'm concerned about the crime rate that's going up in the uh, inner cities. Yeah, Joe Biden's good. President I, Biden's I, giving a talk on that. Oh, I hope he does. But, you know, I live in a um, suburb of Youngstown, and I know Youngstown has crime, but not anything like we've been experiencing. And then in our group that we go to and we put together marches and things like that against crime, I always bring up the fact, you know, the possibility that perhaps there's people coming into the community 
and committing these crimes and leaving back out. Mm-hmm. Because these, these crimes, it was every day, and Youngstown's only so big. One time there was three one weekend, three people killed, and another the next day. What do you think about that? You know, whether crime is coming from without or from within, in my opinion, is almost beside the point. I think the real issue here is that when the middle class is strong, when people have jobs, when there's money circulating in local economies, crime goes down. When people don't have jobs or when the jobs that they do have don't pay enough to live on and people are just you know, hanging on by their teeth or not, not even hanging on successfully and you've got explosions of homelessness like we're seeing across America because inequality has gotten so massive, then you see more crime. And there's an absolute relationship between crime and inequality and it's completely missed by the media. And, uh, and uh, that's my rant, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you for the call. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. And that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 